is brought to you by Habit Aware. If you follow me on social media, you may have seen me wearing a watch with a lilac colored band. That's a keen too, and it's much more than a watch. It's a life changer. I've had trichotillomania for 22 years, and I always thought of myself as a conscious puller. But when I started wearing the keen too, I realized that was not the case. The keen too's motion sensing technology gives my wrist a gentle vibration or hug every time my hand reaches for my hair, bringing me to awareness so that I can make a different choice. Start bringing awareness into your life by going to barbaralally.com slash habitaware. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Barbara, for, for letting me come and talk to you today. And thank you for all the work you do to give people voices and to, to help raise awareness and reduce shame and stigma. As you'll hear from me today, I think those things are really vitally important. So I really appreciate everything that you do. My name is Claire Mackay. I, I live in Oxford in the UK. I'm now 51 years old. Yesterday, I turned 51 years old. Uh, and I've had trichotillomania since I was about 12 years old. And for almost all of the years in between, it's been my secret shame. And I have I've barely told anybody about it in my whole life. And then in the last six months, I tell everybody about it. <laughs> so I've really had a big change for a bit of a personal revolution in relation to trichotillomania. And I've gone from being stuck in the secret shame to being, uh, and, and you can't shut me up about it now. <laughs> when you first developed trichotillomania at 12, where did you pull from? Started with eyelashes. Although I, I think the eyelashes and uh, the, the crown of my head were, were all were pretty close in time. My eyelashes as always, so uh, over time, eyelashes became eyelashes and eyebrows. So eyelashes, eyebrows and crown of head were my um, three pulling sites. Somewhere along the way, I kind of stopped pulling from the crown of my head and I can't really explain that. I just It just stopped having the appeal that it had had for decades. So I haven't really done that for a few years. And over the last year or so, I've had some success with not stopping, but massively reducing the pulling from my eyelashes and eyebrows. So uh, yeah, it's uh, that's how it's been for me. How did you end up finding out the name for this? Well, there wasn't a name for it when I was 12. Um, and there wasn't a name for it until I was about 25. And so until, and of course, there wasn't an internet, and there was nowhere to go, there was literally nowhere to go to find out anything about it. And so for at least 15 years, I thought that it was just me. It was my secret shameful habit. I didn't know a single other person. I didn't I didn't know it was an entity. I didn't know it was a thing. And I very clearly remember the day that a friend of mine, uh, a close friend, um, so somebody that I'd shared my trichotillomania with, uh, he was doing clinical psychology training and had come across the name trichotillomania in, in, in his coursework. And he called me at work. And by then I was working in, at the University of Oxford in the Department of Psychiatry. And he said, it, I found it, there's a thing. And, he, and I wrote it down. I was on the call and I wrote it down. And I went running straight to the library. And back then, it's a, it's a psychiatric hospital. And there was a, a library, an old-fashioned library on the top floor that had the diagnostic manual in it. And so I, I went 
straight away to to open the page to where Trichotillion Mania was, and I just couldn't believe it was written there in black and white. Um, I couldn't believe that it was it that 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 meant it was not just me. And I remember thinking that I remember the feeling of relief that it was not just me, but also the feeling of hope that because it was written down in black and white, that might mean that somewhere in the world there was somebody who understood this and maybe even one day treatment for it. Did your parents notice? If so, how did they react? So my parents, I guess, I mean, because it was my eyelashes, it was probably fairly obvious fairly quickly. And I have a very strong memory of a time when my mum came in when I was in the bath and I didn't know she was coming. So I hadn't had a chance to hide the crown of my the spot on the crown of my head. Uh, and that was a pretty um, emotional experience for, for all involved. That, uh, as I said, there was nowhere for them to go to find support and information to how to look after somebody with this disorder. We'd, and we didn't know it was a disorder. And so we just kind of stumbled through, really. And uh, and I think like a lot of people, I my shame was such that it was very, very difficult for me to ever talk about it. So it, it, was, it was kind of something that just went underground. How long until you met someone with trichotillomania? <laughs> I met somebody with trichotillomania for the first time about five months ago <laughs> and uh, I'm gonna I'm going to name her because she's now become a good um, a friend and colleague her name is Caroline and she she's the treasurer of the BFRB UK and Ireland charity and she spotted my, me because I'd started having a social media profile under the under the moniker the trick prof so, and she recognized she spotted that I was in Oxford she's also in Oxford and so we met up in a coffee shop in the middle of Oxford uh, earlier this year, and it was the first time I'd ever sat with another person who had trichotillomania. I've had lots of conversations with people um, since then, but yeah, it's very recent, really, for me. Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. How did that feel? It still feels amazing. It's, it felt amazing at the time, kind of almost otherworldly, because after decades of it being such a something that was such so hidden in the background for me, to be speaking out loud about it. I mean, it's still very new for me to be doing that. I mean, I'd probably sound fairly um, confident talking about it now, but it's really a very short time ago that when I talked about it, my voice would get wobbly and I would be really nervous about what the other person would think. And so being able to talk openly with other people who experience the same thing and uh, and not just talking, you know, just interacting on online support groups, et cetera, realizing that there is this community of people out there who know exactly how it feels who know exactly how we feel in the different phases of it you know when we're trying so hard not to the times when we have relapses and we feel terrible about ourselves etc it's just the healing that you can get by just connecting I, I still am blown away by it really I remember joining social media to start the Trickster Diaries completely anonymously and seeing other people post pictures of their missing areas. I was so inspired by it and amazed at just how open people could be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and maybe it was the same for you, but I find that the more I talk about it and the more openly I, you know, the, the more I kind of push past the shame. The shame is such a big part of trichotillomania. Certainly was for me. And, and uh, I haven't yet met somebody who didn't say the same thing. And the more you talk about it, the, the the less that shame has any kind of a hold on you. And uh, and it really, really helps. And I, I really um I really encourage anybody 
to enter into any of these communities and of course you can do it anonymously if you certainly on facebook you can you can join support communities on facebook anonymously if that's if, that, if that's what you feel safe doing and then slowly but surely you can start to open up and it's in, it is incredibly healing when you were growing up with trichotillomania what are some things you would do to lessen your pulling do you know i i never really got past just telling myself off and which of course doesn't work I had some really useful therapy, which sort of culminated about 18 months ago. And in that therapy, I uh, the, the therapy wasn't about trichotillomania specifically, but what we ended up focusing on in that therapy was shame. And so it was through the therapy that I recognized just how much shame I had uh, in that very, that specifically related to trichotillomania. I've become very interested in shame uh, you know, I, I am a psychologist, I'm a neuroscientist. And so the neuroscience of shame has become something that I've become um, very interested in. Um, but while while the shame ran the show for me, I couldn't really even think about what other things would help. I can remember, you know, getting bits of material and trying to keep my fingers busy with like shredding bits of material and things like that. But it's really only since in the last, you know, uh, 12, 18 months that I am able, because the shame's not running the show anymore, I'm now able to tune in to the urges and think about what do I really need here? What is it that what is it that's behind this urge and what else can I do to meet the need of that urge? So sort of respecting the urges as real and important and messages that I need to hear but what is it that they really want? Because it's not for me to have no eyelashes. It's something else. You know, it's soothing. It's dealing with, it, there's a rumination going on. Or for me, sometimes the the um, urges are incredibly sensory. So there isn't really anything psychological going on. I've just got this sort of feeling that I desperately want to, to do something about. Um, and for those ones, I tape up my fingers now. I've got micropore tape that I put over my fingertips. So yeah, so I, for me, I couldn't really think about what, how to stop the pulling until I had shame out of the way, because with shame in the way, all you can do is tell yourself off and that doesn't work. My trichotillomania comes in waves. Sometimes I'm pulling all day, every day. Sometimes I'm barely pulling at all. Did you have moments like that in your journey? Yeah, I really did. And um, I can I remember, I think probably every single new year, I made a New Year's resolution that I was going to stop pulling out my hair. And of course, every year I fail. But yeah, I can I definitely remember uh, because it does go in it is it does go in phases depending on what else is going on for you, I think. And you can get to a point where you think now I'm not going to do it anymore. Today, from now on, I'm not going to do it anymore. But it's uh, <laughs> again, if that, if the shame is just telling you off, it's, you're never gonna you're never gonna succeed by by being by telling yourself off. That's what I that's what I um found. You recently published a beautiful article about your trichotillomania. How did you get from letting the shame control you to publishing an article for the world to see? <laughs> Thank you. That's the sort of um the journey of this year for me. But of course it wasn't just the this year, it's 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 been going on for longer than that. So I'm a neuroscientist, I am a Professor of Neuroscience at the University of Oxford. I've spent my whole career, um, 30 years or so, studying the brain. I've studied various different disorders and diseases of the brain. And, and what I'm sort of known for in the uh, in the neuroscience is both uh, the, the methodology that I use, so that's brain scanning, neuroimaging, but more, most recently that applied to um, ageing and dementia. 
And like many people during the pandemic, I kind of hit a bit of a wall. Uh, for me, the pandemic coincided with menopause and I've got a young son who I was homeschooling during that time and trying to keep going with an incredibly busy job. And I just kind of hit a bit of a wall and I thought, okay, I need something needs to change here. I need to take some time out. I need to drop some stuff. I need to, I need to regroup and rethink. And um, and so I had the summer off, the summer of 2020. I, I took four months off and I, I took it as unpaid leave because I didn't want to be sick. Um, I wasn't sick. I just needed to reset, press a reset button. And then when I came back to work last year, I I'd had the therapy that I talked about. And really, and really what emerged for me, it sort of emerged slowly, but once it emerged, it's been quite a, it's been quite fast paced. What emerged for me is that I was kind of sitting on this, I'm sitting in this, in this place, the University of Oxford, and, I, and I've got 30 years of experience in neuroscience, and I've got 40 years of lived experience with this disorder that nobody has, you know, that there's so little research into and there's so little focus on. It's so difficult for it to get the prominence that it deserves. And I thought, well, hang on a minute, I, I can maybe do something useful here. And so and so that's how it started. And so um, I started to talk about it uh, to, you know, one or two trusted colleagues. And they gave me a bit of more confidence to talk about it a little bit more widely. And and then I um, sort of published a blog on the university website of my uh, of my personal story with a bit of information background on trick. But but because I'm an academic, because I, I, I work in, in science, nothing really counts unless you've written an academic paper <laughs> and so then I thought okay well I mean I, my 40 years of lived experience plus 30 years of neuroscience I've probably got something that people might listen to you know and so uh, and so that's how that's how that came to be and I can talk a bit more about the what what's in that paper if you'd like to hear more about that as well Okay, so the paper is not, um, I haven't done any hands-on research yet um, but the paper is really setting out the the field uh, and and the and the problems as I see them, and and what I focused on was three things, and and again none of, none none of these three things are new. They they've all been talked about before, but I'm not. I, I think maybe they haven't been quite put together in the way that I put them together in this paper. So the first thing is that um, BFRBs are made much more complex to study because there are so many comorbidities. So, so many people with BFRBs also have other psychological psychiatric diagnoses. And so they get kind of contaminated. So people, people think of BFRBs as being a type of OCD, which they're not, or just bit a, a part of an anxiety disorder, which it's not, uh, or a type of self-harm. Again, it's not, you know, so it is often comorbid with things like that, but it's not part of anything else it needs to be seen as a standalone distinct set of disorders and for me the the specific thing that makes these disorders distinct and is an important feature is that they're motor so motor just means movement they're all uh, disorders of how we move the, the motor system in the brain unlike every other system in the brain has a really important attribute which is that it's designed to learn patterns of behavior and then execute them without you thinking. So if you think about walking or cycling or driving or whatever sport it is that you're into, it was difficult to learn to do that. But once you've learned to do it, you never have to think about it again. 
And it's the same with the movements that are involved with our BFRBs. So they get they get sort of kind of hard coded. It's called motor patterning. It's, they get kind of hard coded in, and then they're very difficult to unlearn. So there there is something really important about the motor system. So I'm thinking about BFRBs as motor symptoms of some kind of distress in the brain. So then that's number one, motor symptoms of distress. Number two is that picking and pulling and biting, which uh, is my shorthand for what we do in B with BFRBs, are all normal. So all humans pick, pull and bite at themselves. Indeed, all animals pick, pull and bite at themselves. And birds, you know, mammals and birds all have patterns of, um, in, in animals, we, we, we call it grooming. In humans, we can call it grooming too. So picking, pulling, biting is a normal behavior. So rather than thinking that the activity is, is abnormal or, or wrong in any way, it's really the question we should be asking is why can't we stop? So we, the fact that we start is the same as everybody else, but why can't we stop? And I think there's some really important lessons that we can learn from um, animals and particularly primates. So um, our, our behavior evolved for hundreds of thousands of years before we arrived at being human beings. And so, so much of the behavior that we uh, experience, that we exhibit, doesn't come from being clever humans who've invented computers and phones and things like that. It comes from being primates. And so, and because animals and, you know, lots of animals in captivity will pull out their own hair. So it's not, you know, the behavior that we experience as humans, in other words, the, the, the systems for this are long established systems in our brain. And I don't think they've been explored properly from that perspective. So clues from our animal ancestors is, is really what number two is about. And then number three is all about shame. So shame, as, a, as I've already explained, was super important for me in terms of understanding my own difficulties with trichotillomania. But I've also recognized that if you think about if we go back to the beginning and think about um, uh, trichotillomania being a motor response to distress, well, the problem is that you've got this kind of cycle, haven't you? Because if, if distress causes an urge, urge causes you to pull, pull might give you some kind of little uh, jolt of relief or, or, or pleasure or reward or something, but very quickly that's followed by a wave of shame and shame puts you back in distress. So shame is actually a really key part of what keeps us trapped in our trichotillomania, uh, in my opinion. So it's it's really, so I think that distress is kind of the cause of this cycle in the first place, but the thing that keeps us trapped is the shame that we feel. And shame is amplified by stigma. So the more stigma we feel from society, the more shame we feel and the more trapped we are in our disorders. So that's kind of my my three things in a nutshell, or quite a big nutshell. <laughs> the holiday season is approaching, and you know what that means. So much excitement, and oftentimes, anxiety. I use my habit of wear a keen too to help me make different choices when I know I need to self-soothe. Thanks to the gentle hug that the keen too gives my wrist when I am doing the scanning behavior, I am able to make different decisions and leave my hair right where it is. Learn more about how the Keen 2 can help you at barbaralally.com slash habitaware. Oh, before I forget, keep your eyes open for a Black Friday code. I just might know one. Wink, wink. 
I really love that we are talking about trichotillomania being its own thing. For a lot of my journey, I was misdiagnosed and given treatment options that didn't work. And because they didn't work, I felt like a failure. Right. I, I've not, I've never been diagnosed with anything else. I don't think I have any other psychiatric or neurodevelopmental disorder. I just have trichotillomania. And, you know, I, I, I've asked myself, do I have anxiety? Am I anxious? But, but I mean, if you have to ask yourself that question, you're not, I don't think, you know, because uh, obviously it has given me some degree of anxiety, but I don't have an anxiety disorder. And, um, and I, and I don't have OCD and I don't have self-harm, et cetera. I have trichotillomania. And I think that it's really important that we see it as distinct. We're not ever going to understand it properly unless we, until we start doing that. You mentioned in the blog about having other BFRBs. Which ones have you had? So I always bit my nails, bit, but nail biting came before hair pulling for me. I've I've never not bitten my nails in my life, you know, but, but of course most children or many children bite their nails. It's sort of probably more unusual to not bite nails than to bite them for, uh, for, for children at a certain age. As well as biting my nails, I've always picked and bitten at the skin around them. And so my fingers have often been quite a state. Uh, and, um, you know, for many years, I basically, was, I, there was, I was always in pain because some bit of my fingers had been bitten badly. But although that was always true, I was never as distressed by that as I was. For me, the eyelashes was always the thing that was the core distress. I really, really didn't want to have no eyelashes. I mean, I desperately have eyelashes. And in a way, I could live with everything else if I could just have had eyelashes. Skin picking, I've, I don't, I don't, um, other than the picking of the skin around my fingers, I don't particularly pick at my skin, but that's mostly because I'm kind of lucky with my skin. My skin isn't, doesn't, isn't, is kind of always been okay. But, you know, if I do get a spot or, a, or, or you know, a blemish somewhere, I do kind of savage it as well. So, you know, if, if I'd been somebody who had more interesting stuff on their skin, I probably would have been a, a skin picker too. I did remember something interesting the other day, which was before I pulled out my eyelashes, I can remember being a small girl and I probably would have been like eight years old. And I was staying at my granny's house and uh, me and my sister were staying in her spare bedroom. And I don't know whether you have, I don't know whether you have this kind of wallpaper in the States, but in the, in the UK, we have something we call wood chip wallpaper. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of wallpaper with like, like little chips of wood literally in it. I can remember lying in bed and feeling this wallpaper and oh, and then and then noticing I could pull them out. I could pull out the little wood chips from the wallpaper. And I was a good girl. I was always a really good girl, but I could not stop myself from pulling out the wood chips in my granny's wallpaper. And before I knew it, I'd really damaged her wall. And I but I couldn't stop. And I and I look back at that now and think, aha, you know, that the behavior was there, the tendency was there even when I was much younger. I always tried to bite my nails, but it never clicked for me. I just pulled out my hair, and when I was a teenager, I had acne, and so I would sit in front of the magnified mirror for hours on end. Do you find that mirrors are good or bad for you? Do you as in, are you more likely to pull in front of a mirror or less likely to pull if you've got a mirror in front of you? That's a great question. For me, the mirror is something I go to after to take a look at what I've done. Sometimes I'll stay in the mirror, but most of the time I start pulling away from it. How about you? Yeah, um, very similar. Very similar, actually. I, I saw something, uh, something which was a question on one of the um, Facebook support groups about mirrors, 
and I noticed that there was quite a difference in in people's experience. So for me, I'm probably less likely to pull if I've got a mirror in front of me because I'm more likely to notice I'm doing it. I'm more likely to think, you know, it, there's something, there's some kind of barrier there for me, a helpful barrier for me. Um, but I would definitely go looking in the mirror after a pulling session to see what damage I'd done. But yes, I, but I noticed that other people said that the mirror was actually part of the part of the ritual in a way. It was the, the mirror was kind of part of the tools of the trade, if you like. But yeah, no, not so much for me. When I am in the mirror, I try to say nice things to myself to try and break that shame cycle. If I'm not shaming myself about it, maybe I can move on with my day. Hmm. I mean, if, if you can do that, that's brilliant. And I, and I think that that's a really good thing for people to try. When shame ran the show for me, I feel like I didn't stand a chance. I mean, I could have said those things, but I wouldn't have believed them. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I needed I needed a bit more help from a skilled psychologist to get to help me with the shame. Otherwise, it would have been empty words for me if I'd done that, I think. I had a I had a sort of intervention in relation to shame and um was able I mean what we did in this intervention is um it's uh, there's it's kind of it's called empty chairing so you invite the the inner critic to come and sit in an em in an empty chair next to you and it's a way of the therapist gets you to say out loud what the what your critical voice is actually saying what are the words your critical voice uses when they're talking to you when i realized what those words were i was quite shocked so the words that my critical voice said to me every day for all of my life were, you're weak, you're stupid, and you're ugly. And that's that was the mantra that my critical voice was yipping away at me inside every day. And it's only when they're said out loud that you can kind of, you can challenge them. You know, it's like, well... I'm actually not weak. You know, there's all sorts of evidence in my life that I'm really not weak. And I'm also not stupid. <laughs> and, and well, ugly, well, beauty and ugly depends how you want to define it. But honestly, eyelashes and not eyelashes, not the difference between, between ugly and beauty. So it wasn't until I'd said out loud those hideous things that my shame said to me every single day that I was able to counter them and you know and it was it was a bit there was a bit more to it than what I just said but fundamentally that was what the that was what the job was and and so now if I put myself in the same position if uh, in in times when I found that I couldn't resist the urges and I pulled out a few eyelashes I I, I genuinely do try and give myself a bit of a hug you know it, it's kind of because what I needed you know what what caused that was actually some need and so I try and give myself a bit of a hug and um, and I try to talk to myself from a position of compassion. So, you know, yeah, it, you've, yes, you've pulled out some hairs, but that's OK. You know, that is what you do to self-soothe when you're feeling in distress. Let's think about what the distress was. Let's think about what other things you can do to make yourself feel better. So I try to be like the, the best friend voice, you know, the nice person voice to myself in those moments. And I actually can do that now. I can I can do that and mean it now, <laughs> but I wouldn't have been able to before. And tell me if this is the same for you, but for me, because the negative voice started so early on, it's really easy to let that come forward rather than that best friend voice. My therapist gave me a beautiful sort of image for it, uh, which really stays with me. See whether this you know, you know when you know you there are those wind-up toys. So you can imagine like a wind-up toy when you're a little kid, 
and imagine that the wind-up toy has walked across the floor and it's stuck against the wall and it's just kind of banging away against the wall and that wind-up toy is your critical voice going you're stupid you're weak you're ugly you're stupid you're weak you're ugly and so that but basically that 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 wound up toy is just stuck it's a stuck thing and you can just turn it around and it can walk off and it's you know it's over but it but that sense of that of it being a kind of a, a like a stuck record it's just it's saying the same thing it's trying to be helpful believe it or not that voice is actually trying to be helpful because it knows that what you want is to have eyelashes but it's kind of just going about it in the wrong way so i had to i had to kind of make a deal with my my critical voice it was like okay listen little guy banging your head against the wall let's just see let's just give me a fortnight off give me a fortnight off those messages and if you feel like you need to come back after that then okay you can come back and tell me how stupid and weak and ugly I am but let's just try without it and honestly life's never been the same since now that the shame doesn't run the show and you are so open about your trichotillomania life is very different now how does it feel well, probably in more ways than I'll be able to think of um, off the top of my head. But I think that probably the most important one is that the enemy of shame is connection. So shame keeps you silent. Shame keeps you, shame's favorite thing is for you to be hidden in silence because it's then got all the power. And so connection is the perfect antidote to shame. You actually can't, you know, as we're sitting here talking now openly about our trichotillomania, we kind of shame has got, has got no place at this table because you know we both won't allow that in the, in this conversation and it's the same in all of the conversations that I've had with other people that we can we we really understand has felt or does feel about the behaviors we have incredible compassion for each other we can be that kind of best friend voice for each other really easily because we know the pain and so connection however you feel able to make it has a massive impact on the on the shame. So that's one big thing. And then the other is is kind of back to what I said about feeling like there's maybe something useful I can do. You know, so you're you're doing something incredibly useful. You're using your knowledge, your expertise, your talent in putting together this podcast to give people those voices to to break down those barriers. And that's absolutely brilliant. And you know, I talked to um, Aline Anila Inani from Habit Aware, and she used her expertise and know-how to create a company and create a product that she knows will help people and so and I'm trying and lots of other people too but what I have is these 30 years of of neuroscience background and on top of my lived experience so I'm going to do everything I can with that to see whether I can do something to help people in my way too and between us <laughs> I really hope that we, we 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 break down those barriers and we start to enable people to come out of those from, you know, I, I call my thing coming out from under the cloak of shame, emerge from under that cloak of shame and, and, and actually recognizing that what waits for you out there is enormous connection, <laughs> is, the, is that feeling of connection with, the other, with other people who know, who know your pain, who know your struggle. You don't need to explain anything. We get it. And so, yeah, I, and that, all of that, is incredibly healing you know so that all just adds to that feeling of well for me it adds to the feeling that I'm doing the best thing that I can for myself 
for this disorder, but also for the community. Then that's yeah, and that feels amazing. And I tell people all the time: once you start sharing, you never want to stop because it does feel so good. Yeah, exactly. And um, I've even started exploring the brain mechanisms behind that. So that that feeling of connection, well, that's part of what makes us human. And there are, you know, there are neurochemicals involved in that feeling, and they are the antidotes to the desire to pull. They are, are actually the same systems that the, the the shame is part of the problem. It's it's much bigger part of the problem than people realize. So we all know that shame is a consequence of what we do. We all know that we feel shame as a consequence of what we do. But I'm not sure that people realize it's also what keeps you trapped. It's actually also what keeps you not being able to stop. It keeps you in distress. It keeps the state of your brain being such that you need to pull out your eyelashes or your hair, wherever it might be, to soothe that feeling. So it's actually, it's it's not just like a nasty word. <laughs> it's not just a nasty concept that we that we put up with. It's also causing the problems. And so it's, uh, and as, as I've said, it's that very same mechanism in our brain that you the, the opposite of that is what connection is the lovely glow you get when you connect in that way where you both understand each other is literally the drug you can use to stop pulling out your hair <laughs> what is your opinion of people having advice or striving to become pull free i'm not a fan of that concept i'm afraid i don't personally that would be that wouldn't work for me um I've, and in fact i've always known that wouldn't work for me so i've never even tried to do that and the reason that i'm not a fan of that concept is that it's too easy to fail and failure makes you feel shame so for me i feel more satisfaction from being able to pull a couple of hairs and then stop for me that's success whereas if if I'd failed when I pulled out the first hair, it, it's game over. It's game over. I would always be a failure. There goes my shame voice again. So I like to think of my own trichotillomania, which is, by the way, much improved, but not gone. You know, so I, I think I will probably always have urges. And sometimes I'll be able to resist those urges and sometimes I won't. But I don't live with the shame anymore. And so the the biggest difference that makes is that when I realize I'm in danger, when I when I pulled out a hair or two and I recognize the danger signals, I can now do that soothing thing for myself and think, well, what do you really need here? What what can we do? You know, I try and I, I literally try and do the hugging of myself and what what can we do here to to do something different? So stopping after having started for me is success. That's a that for me, that's a bigger success than being pull free. What about you? What do you think about that concept? I completely agree. For my personal journey, striving to be pull free was setting me up for failure. And I always thought, well, if we could be pull free, wouldn't all of us be pull free? Exactly. And remember back to what I said in my um, summary of the research that I've done so far, everybody picks and pulls and bites. Everybody pulls out the odd hair in, here and there. It is normal human behavior. The problem isn't the first one or two or three. It's the next. It's the fact that you then can't stop. So it's setting too high a bar. In fact, it's, I think, setting an impossible bar to be completely pull free. It's just kind of unrealistic. I'm a big fan of being compassionate. Compassion is, is also the antidote to shame. If you can learn, it takes some time and it's easy to say and it's hard to do, but 
self-compassion, I would I would take that any day over a day of full free. I do really, uh, I'm going to say it again, because I think it's important to recognize that compassion is not easy. It's, it sounds easy, doesn't it? It sounds like a wishy-washy soft thing. Actually, compassion is quite hard and it takes, it really takes practice and uh, it takes training and practice to be able to do it. And so um, I, I don't underestimate. It's kind of like, you know, if you, if you wanted to be able to run a marathon, you wouldn't assume you could go out and do it on day one. You know, you'd have to start slowly and you'd have to build up and build up and you'd have to keep, you'd have setbacks, you'd have injuries along the way, etc. cetera. I, I think self-compassion should be thought of like that. It's hard to do it. And it takes constant practice to do it well. But yeah, it's a, uh, if anybody, if you're interested, this is the Bible. <laughs> I, I keep it by my side, the compassionate mind. This is where I started. I mean, it, it may be a little bit heavy going to for, for, for everybody. Um, but for me, that was the beginning of the healing for me. Where can we find you? Always happy to to talk more and I'm happy to connect with anybody. And I'm the trick prof on, on all the socials, but not TikTok because that's too, I'm too old for TikTok. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to connect uh, with anyone at any time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Trick Talks. Did you know that I offer a Trichotillomania online course? My course is called Sharing Our Stories. And in it, we do a deep dive into your relationship with trichotillomania. We use my guided journal, My Trickster Diaries, as our workbook. We also complete empowering activities and have a bi-weekly support group so that you can meet others in the community. As a gift to you, please use promo code TRICKTALKS25 to receive 25% off the five-session package. You can access this promotion at barbaralally.com. Thank mm-hmm. you.